0: Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Nations are weird. At first glance, one might think that they should feel definitive, identifiable, solid, but often when crossing from one to another, they feel anything but. I remember the first time I went to another country. I drove from my hometown of Portland, Oregon, To Vancouver, British Columbia, and I was very excited. I'd never been out of the United States before. I set foot on foreign soil for the first time in my life, and it was remarkably like being at home in the Pacific Northwest. Vancouver is an amazing city, but it felt a whole lot like Portland or Seattle, albeit with the metric system and better sushi. But at the same time, nations within themselves can also feel disunified and fractured, and different from themselves. I remember visiting New Orleans years ago, and it was markedly different from my hometown. So was Los Angeles, another city that felt like a foreign country compared to Portland. These two cities, which ostensibly I should have had more in common with than Vancouver, BC, felt very, very different to me. Both of those places are amazing, by the way. I could spend hours sitting in a New Orleans dive bar, and L.A., despite its smoggy reputation, is one of the most beautiful cities I've ever been to. In both of those places, I thrilled at seeing a place that was unlike my home. I enjoyed those differences. But, according to maps, and flags, and signs, and several other things, I was in the same country. So, when you look at examples like that, national boundaries can feel arbitrary. Notions of differing regions being part of the same nations and other neighboring regions being part of a different nation and differing regions lumped together, that can feel very strange. And it gets even more complicated because on an individual level, a person does not have just one point of identification. An individual person might feel different nationhoods, different identities within them. I am an American. I'm also an Oregonian. I'm also a Portlander. I am also a former Catholic. That's something that never really goes away from you. It's weird. Uh, And lots of folks in the Pacific Northwest refer to themselves as Cascadians. For a while, when I lived abroad, I was an American expat, which is a whole different thing. And all of these identities... They can bleed into and out of each other, they can overlap, they can be present either in great or small amounts at different times and in different places. For the national identity to be at all a thing, it really requires a leap of imagination. And I'm not the first one to say that national identities are imagined ones. Probably the most influential book about nationalism ever written is by political scientist Benedict Anderson, and it's called imagined communities. It's a work that dives into the construction and reinforcement of nations and that feeling of nationhood from identifying with our homeland or city or region or the like, though Anderson's focus is mainly on nation-states. In the book, Anderson sketches out the birth of our modern conception of nationhood as a response and function of several factors, such as the decline of the influence of dynastic rulers who were often only tenuously affiliated to the areas that they ruled, the decline of religion as the go-to identity for a great mass of people. For instance, nowadays, a lot of folks in Europe will probably think of themselves as being part of France or Germany or Belgium or what have you, but rewind centuries ago and they might have thought of themselves as being part of something called Christendom. That has changed. Anderson also points to the rise of print, which has reinforced regional vernaculars at the cost of both local dialects and also of supranational languages like Latin. And he also points to the rise of coherent New World identities that were in direct response to being ruled by distant colonial powers. Plenty of folks in the New World saw that there was a difference between, say, being an American or British or being an American and Spanish. The point is, though, is that nations are not something that just rise out of the earth. They rise out of a specific pattern of historical factors. They're not just there. They're something we made. Here's Anderson's definition of what nations really are. He says, I propose the following definition of the nation. It is an imagined political community, and imagined as both inherently limited and sovereign. It is imagined because the members of even the smallest nation will never know most of their fellow members, meet them, or even hear of them, yet in the minds of each lives the image of their communion. Communities are to be distinguished not by their falsity slash greatness, but by the style in which they are imagined. The nation is imagined as a community because, regardless of the actual inequality and exploitation that may prevail in each, the nation is conceived as a deep horizontal comradeship. Ultimately, it is this fraternity that makes it possible over the past two centuries for so many millions of people not so much to kill as willing to die for such limited imaginings. In the book, Anderson goes on to sketch how ideas of nationhood are preserved and reinforced by the governing parts of society with tools like a national census that quantifies who the nation is and what's going on with it, maps that enforce straight lines on cloudy borders like the border between Washington State and Vancouver, British Columbia, for instance, and museums which take undifferentiated history and turn it into a coherent national story. It is a book so influential that whenever you're reading a scholarly work about this sort of thing, and the author calls nations imagined communities or makes some other reference to imagination when they are talking about nations and nationhood nationalism, like I'm doing now, take a drink I guarantee you that after an hour or so on LexisNexis or JSTOR, if you drink every time somebody obliquely references Anderson, you will be nicely buzzed. Given the imagined nature of nations, it can seem curious that nationalism can exist at all. But it does. It exists in almost every citizen of every country in the world, albeit with varying intensities. But not only does nationalism exist so too do extreme versions of it exist. The 20th century, and even the 21st, have no shortage of political movements that turn their own imagined communities into causes to kill and burn for. And one of the most prominent political ideologies of the past hundred years, and certainly the most malignant political ideology of the past 100 years, made the imagined nation its organizing principle. It took this thing that only really kind of sort of exist, and made it the pinnacle of its moral, or rather immoral, imagination. That ideology was, of course, fascism, a set of beliefs that rooted the nation in nationhood, not in our collective imaginations, but in earth and blood. In this series, I'm going to be taking a look at the country that invented fascism, Italy. Over the next several episodes, I'm going to get into the history of Italian fascism and how it played out over a 20-some year period in Mussolini's Italy, why it took hold, what it meant, and how Italy turned out because of it. And I'm going to spoil the ending for you right now. It does not go well. None of this goes well for Italy. And you might be wondering why the podcast that's all about things like moose riding, dinosaurs, palindromes, and non existent African mountain ranges is tackling a topic as heady as Italian fascism at length. Well, I have a few reasons. First, I'm fascinated by the idea of invented countries. In previous episodes, I've talked about Manchukuo the fake Japanese country that was made in northern China, Sealand, the kingdom of South Sudan, and I've already spoken about how strange it is to just say, hey, this group of people, this patch of land, it's a country now. Invented countries are fascinating, and this is one of the biggest examples of that. Secondly, I love me historical crazy people. I don't like present-day crazy people. They are bothersome. But historical crazy people who are dead and we don't have to deal with anymore, they are kind of fun to study and talk about. I've already talked about the modest kingdom in Sudan, the siege of the Grand Mosque in Mecca, and the Taiping Rebellion in southern China. All of these were violent and bizarre movements led by charismatic and decidedly unhinged leaders. Mussolini is definitely that. He's basically a real-life supervillain. A supervillain that had his own country. Like, I want to take this guy seriously. He's responsible for all kinds of terrible things. Oppression, the deaths of tens of thousands of people, collaboration with Hitler. He's not a good dude, and I want to acknowledge that. But at the same time, he's also bald Italian Dr. Doom. That'll be fun to get into. Third, I have some personal connections to this. Um, Not with fascist Italy myself. I didn't exist yet when it was a thing. But my grandfather on my dad's side fought in World War II in the European theater, and he was in Italy after the war. Last year, I went through a lot of his old photographs of post-war Europe, and he'd snapped several pictures of fascist plazas, stadiums, and monuments that had been seized and occupied by American forces. They were utterly fascinating to look at, and it's what got me interested in this topic. In particular, there was one image which showed an obelisk with the word Duce spelled out on its side. It was a prominent and vain monument to Mussolini, and that monument which had once glorified a dictator was festooned with American flags, and I found it satisfying to see a symbol of authoritarianism and dictatorship brought low, decorated with symbols of democracy. After going through those images that a relative of mine had taken from the 1940s, I had to learn more. And lastly, I think this is somewhat understudied. Uh, Everyone talks about fascist Germany, everybody talks about imperial Japan, but few people talk about the other Axis power. So for those of you who are wondering whether or not the series is turning into something all serious and luxury, don't worry, this is all going to be very on-brand. It's going to get a little dark, but this will still be the same podcast that you know and love, albeit sticking with one topic for a while. To begin, though, here's some background. Italy initially seems like a curious candidate for ultra-nationalism, because the Italian nation had not existed for a terribly long time. Unlike other European countries like, say, France or the United Kingdom, it was fairly late to unify. Until the middle part of the 1800s, there was no real Italian state at all. After the decline of the Western Roman Empire, throughout the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and into the early modern period— The Italian peninsula was a series of disparate and sometimes warring kingdoms, city-states, papal states, and principalities that didn't add up to anything that we would call Italian. The term Italy did exist as a geographical designation, but it no more connoted nationhood than terms like Iberia or Patagonia or Central America do today. We all understand those regions as having several nations within them, and that was the case with Italy. This is not to say that there wasn't the odd reference to the faint glimmer of italian in writers like Dante and Machiavelli, and later on, Italian nationalists would take those references when those older, more respected writers were talking about their region in general, and hold them up as proof of a historical primordial Italy, but for the most part, Italianness is best reflected in a riddle from Milan pre-unification. It goes like this: A man walks into a cafe and says, I am not Milanese, I am not a foreigner. What am I? After that, the confused cafe patrons scratch their heads in bewilderment. He announces, I am an Italian. Even after reunification, though, some northerners would often speak of going down to Italy when they went down to the peninsula proper. And that was after all of the regions, north and south, were flying under the same flag. And at this point, you might be thinking, what about language? Language is a unifying power. Couldn't Italy just be all the people that spoke Italian? But what we think of as a coherent, mutually understandable Italian language, well, that also didn't exist. Different regions spoke different dialects that were not necessarily understandable to their neighbors on the peninsula and it might even be fair to call these dialects separate languages. The difference between a dialect and a language is, well, hard to pin down. There's the old saw that a language is just a dialect with an army. And this problem of various people on the Italian peninsula not necessarily being able to understand each other, that persisted into the 20th century. So we can't go looking to language as a unifying force either. The notion of Italy and Italianness didn't really exist until it was created, that is to say, imagined, in the middle 1800s during a period of unification now called Risorgimento. Going into all of the details about the Risorgimento would take several podcast episodes on its own, so I'm going to condense a whole bunch of history down to this. Essentially, ruling interests in northern Italy combine their resources so that their particular region could be more competitive with neighboring powers such as France and Austria-Hungary. At the same time, idealistic revolutionaries, such as Giuseppe Garibaldi, filled with zeal from the revolutions in France and Americas, expanded that to turn it into a full-on war of unification for the entire peninsula, which, after all, would look a lot better on the map than just northern Italy unifying together. After 1870, the Italian peninsula was the newly minted Kingdom of Italy. Incidentally, here's a nice example of how Nations can be sort of funny. Giuseppe Garibaldi, the unification leader, the guy who is lionized as the most Italian Italian to ever Italian, was born in Nice, which is now France. Aren't nations funny? Post-1870, Italy was suddenly a country, but compared to other powers in Europe, it was younger, poorer, and had less of an air of legitimacy about it. So, how can Italy go around to getting a seat at the table with the other great powers? Well, it lacked that essential accessory for European powers at the time? Colonies. Back in the late 1800s, you just weren't a real, respectable civilization unless you invaded another country, killed the people there, and took their stuff. In 1896, Italy tried to do exactly that. By then, most of Africa had been divided up by other European powers, much to the chagrin of actual Africans. And there were only a few places left for Italy to invade. There were places like Liberia, but that country was the creation of the United States. And invading there would have been awkward. There were also Eritrea, Somalia, and Ethiopia. Hey, Ethiopia, that was a big, long-standing, well-respected country that was just sitting there, being a sovereign state in Africa. How dare it. So in a war that would make for a great movie about plucky underdogs, Ethiopia, under Melanik II, successfully repelled invading Italians in 1896. Italy was humiliated. No colonial power had ever been defeated so handily by an African armed force. Ethiopia remained sovereign, and Italy became the one country in Europe to be mocked for not being able to successfully invade and colonize an African country. Later on, Italy did successfully acquire Libya, Eritrea, and Somalia, but the defeat in Ethiopia will become important later, after fascists seize power, and look around for somewhere to invade. Also important to Italy's pre-fascist history was World War I. Italy was technically on the winning side of World War I, but if you know anything about that conflict, you'll recall that it did not really leave anyone on any side brimming over with satisfaction about how the conflict went. As a member of the winning side, Italy did get some of the spoils of war, when the Allies carved up Austria-Hungary. There were a few odd bits of that former country whose citizens did speak Italian dialects, and those areas were indeed incorporated into the Kingdom of Italy. From a certain point of view, World War I could be viewed as the last war of Italian unification. You'd probably think that victory in war and new territory is precisely the thing that would please a given country's most militant and nationalistic forces— and just like everywhere else, Italy had militant and nationalistic forces, even though it was less than a hundred years old. And yet, rightist and nationalist elements in Italy, after being on the winning side of the war, after gaining new territory, felt a certain amount of umbrage about the whole experience. Fascists would later on characterize Italy's outcome in World War I as a maimed victory, as opposed to a glorious one. And later on, they would implicitly seek to remedy that. But again. No one came out of World War I feeling particularly good about the experience. At the same time, the Kingdom of Italy was facing other internal issues, but more on that later. What's important here is that prior to the rise of fascism, Italy perceived itself as falling short relative to other European powers for a variety of reasons. That perceived falling shortness was due to a variety of factors about the country's relative newness, its generally poor economy when compared to other European powers, and its lack of dominance in international affairs. And if there's one thing that militant nationalists can't stand, it's not being dominant. Just being kind of, you know, okay, that's never enough. So the stage is set for Italy to fall to fascism. But before we get into Mussolini, the march on Rome, the rise of fascism, and all that, I'm going to use the next episode to define some terms, or rather, term. Fascism is one of the most debated terms in modern political discourse, and next time on this show, I'm going to answer a deceptively complicated question. What is fascism anyway? I know that this is different. I know that doing a long-form series is not like the other things that we've done in the podcast before, but this is something that I've wanted to do for a long time, particularly after I got off the radio. When I started doing my own thing on this podcast, I knew that I would have the time and the resources to do something that the radio station would never, ever let me do. So I'm very excited to do this for the next probably more than half a dozen episodes or so, and I hope you'll stick with me. There's a lot here. As always, we are on iTunes. Uh, Go to iTunes, give us ratings and reviews and all that. Also, share the show on social media. If you have friends who are into history, also friends who are into political science, which is going to be a lot of this next series, tell them about it. Put it on, you know, Instagram. That's a visual medium. This is audio. But, you know, put it on the Tumblr or whatever. Also, thank you very much to people who are sharing the podcast on social media. Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, the rest of it. I'm on Facebook, facebook facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. I'm on Twitter at Joe Streckert. Thank you all very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye.